I was 17 years old when Rana was born and soon noticed how my sister was slower to walk, talk, read and write than her peers. Today she still finds it hard to understand instructions or to concentrate. She has very little spatial awareness and finds hand-eye coordination difficult. She needs help with things like cutting her fingernails or crossing the road. She will need lifelong support. For several months when Rana was younger, family excursions would involve packing a few small towels just in case Rana got so stressed that she threw up. The pile of fresh flannels that my mother stacked by the front door was a fluffy barometer of stress, simultaneously tragic and comic. Rana preferred sticking to a familiar routine, so her stress would be triggered by anything from moving class to meeting new people. When she was 11, I remember a spell of skin picking which reached its bloody peak during what was meant to be an overnight visit to my new flat in London. I explained what the place was like, and what we'd be doing, and Rana was excited during the drive up from Sussex, but as soon as we arrived, she became increasingly distressed at the unfamiliar surroundings and started gouging her hands and arms with her fingernails. No amount of comfort, reassurance, or distraction helped, so I drove her home, crying most of the way. Rana audibly, me internally. I felt I'd failed Rana as a sister, and was desperately worried that her world was limited to school and home, and that this didn't bode well for her future. Welcome to Genetic Drift, the podcast where we take a deep dive into the world of genetic diseases. I'm your co-host Anthony. And I'm Juliet. So, what are we talking about today? Okay, so today we are covering a condition called Fragile X Syndrome. That sounds dramatic. Yeah, I, I mean, the name seems a little bit more dramatic than what the genetics of it are. But that excerpt that I read was from a book called Made Possible, Stories of Success by People with Learning Disabilities in Their Own Words by Saba Salman. And I thought it was a good way of giving us a, an idea of what it's actually like for someone living with the condition and for family members who have someone living with the condition. So Fragile X Syndrome is a learning disability? So Fragile X Syndrome is a genetic disorder characterised by mild to moderate intellectual disability. So what is that? really mean? Is that like autism? No, no. Autism would be a specific learning disability, whilst an intellectual disability can have more broad aspects where like autism could be a symptom of an intellectual disability. Okay, so tell me about what kind of symptoms there are from this. Okay, so the first typical symptoms are that two-thirds of women with fragile X will have mild to severe learning disabilities, and men will typically be more severely affected with an average IQ of 55 compared to the average IQ of the general population of 100, where 70 is normally considered severely below average. Okay, so much lower IQs. Yes. It also has other effects on patients. So anxiety is a common symptom. There's a lot of behaviours that are associated with autism that you'll find in about a third of patients. So these include obsessive tendencies, delayed speech, 
difficulty with social interactions. So with the delayed speech, it means like person will know what to say, but there'll be like this slight delay between when they're thinking about it and when they say it. Okay. There's also quite often poor spatial awareness is observed in patients, poor hand-eye coordination, just like uh, the excerpt mentioned, and there may be physical features that are visible on a patient, which include a long narrow face, large ears, flexible fingers, and large testicles. <laughs> what? That's a random detail? Yeah, um, I don't know how they came across that one, I'll be honest. And Here, I, I need to test you for this syndrome. Drop your pants. Yeah, I mean, that that's probably not the way any doctor should ever approach you, and if they have... We need to go talk to whatever CCG was responsible for them. Nobody knows what a CCG is, hun. Fair enough. Governing body that's in charge of some doctors. Uh, there are a few more symptoms. There's more? Yeah, unfortunately, there's more. I feel like the Billy Mays of suffering. So, hyperactivity, so like ADD-like symptoms. And in 15% of males and 5% of females, seizures. Okay. So... There was a lot there. Let's break that down. So you were saying that there's the learning disabilities and kind of speech disabilities. So these are all things that would make it really hard for somebody to go through everyday life. Yeah, depending on the severity, it could really affect someone's interaction with our current society and the expectations that we have. So in some cases, they might need support to be able to go to school or go to work or take care of themselves? Yeah, in the most severe cases, they're probably going to need something akin to full, full-time care. Okay. And is this a, one of those diseases where it's really kind of a spectrum? There's a little bit of a spectrum, but typically it's kind of on the moderate end. So someone will always need a bit of care, but it's not typically in regards to intellectual disability, a severe one, it's mild to moderate, which is still not great. It's not it's not a pleasant experience for the person who has the condition, and it can be quite distressing for the families. Okay, but with support, they can kind of get through life? Yes, yes, they can. And I think uh, it's quite good to actually just jump a little bit back to the excerpt again, because... Uh, Saba actually goes on a little bit further to explain some of her sister's progression and what made it possible. Ooh, okay, hit me. So what made my sister's success possible? Firstly, my family has fought for Rana to have the right support. It's easy to assume that if your relative has a learning disability, the system will step in and help you navigate your way towards the best help. But the reality is that you're jettisoned into the complicated, bewildering worlds of special needs education and health and social care. You have to deal with a revolving door of professionals, including health visitors, GPs, paediatricians, special educational needs coordinators, social workers, care managers, speech and language therapists, occupational therapists, and physiotherapists. As a result of this, my mother's developed the lobbying skills of a parliamentary campaigner, the negotiating expertise of a mediator, and the single-minded determination of an army general. My mother is not a woman to be messed with. At Rana's mainstream primary school, we got her what was then known as a Statement of Special Educational Needs. This outlined the additional help she needed at school for what we then knew to be a moderate learning disability. This potted history of getting Rana the right help belies the fact that it was often two steps forward and one step back. 
the process would suddenly be stalled because we'd be allocated a new social worker and have to explain the facts all over again, or we'd find that the perfect support existed, but it was too far away. It's also the case that not everyone has the time, energy, or wherewithal to negotiate the support maze and fight for the best outcomes, be that for a child or an adult. For anyone whose relative has profound and multiple learning disabilities, like severe learning disability as well as a physical disability and a medical condition, the battle is even more arduous. This is because complex needs require high levels of support, and these don't easily fit into the care services that exist. And crucially, the special educational needs landscape today is very different from what it was 20 years ago when we were looking for schools for Rana. Funding cuts are undermining the specialist educational support that is a fundamental building block if disabled children and young people are to go on and reach their potential. Without access to the right help at school, a generation of children will be failed. So with that, you can see that they, they have seen some success with her, and the, the the book actually mentions that Rana was able to go to university, which is wonderful to see, but a lot of help is needed, and a lot of fighting is needed for these patients, and a lot of advocacy. Yeah, it sounds like an absolute nightmare to get that support. Yeah, and it's not really in... It's, I wouldn't really call it a nightmare of the condition, I'd call it more of a nightmare of the system around the condition. Yeah, and note that this excerpt is from a book written in the UK, so we're not really aware of how special needs support occurs in other countries, but I think in, in general it's not a very popular topic in political dialogue. No, definitely not. And so it can always use a bit more attention and I'm sure a bit more funding. Yes, definitely. I think the problem is that when people see individuals with reduced autonomy due to a learning disability, they start separating themselves from it, they disassociate, and then they run the risk of forgetting that that they are people, and that they have all the needs that everyone else has, and they need that representation. Yeah, and I think it's also worth remembering that you don't always need to separate people out from mainstream schooling or employment. They're, with support, there can be ways to allow them to, to function in the mainstream system, and there's pros and cons to that. But it's good to remember that you don't need to just completely separate people out and hide them away. Yeah, I, I think the struggle that a lot of people face is that it requires three things that we are often in short supply of. Time, patience, and money. Yeah. Ooh, okay. feel like I derailed us here into a deep discussion of <laughs> social care and special needs. Yeah, you threw me into a direction that I'm not fully equipped for, I'll be honest. <laughs> okay, sorry, let's get back to the science. How does this condition get diagnosed? So, obviously, one of the first stages would be observing symptoms. The symptoms will obviously help with diagnosis. But then to confirm diagnosis, it helps if you have a family history, but isn't necessary. The final step would be to uh, conduct some blood tests. Now, there are two types of blood tests you're looking for. One, where you take the DNA and you can do a certain procedure on it called PCR. Now, this is a procedure where you use a bunch of enzymes and cellular functions to just replicate and amplify a specific section of DNA 
using these little guide primers to make sure that it's the same piece every time. And in patients with Fragile X syndrome, the band that's produced from this is longer than the regular one. So it represents a gene. So a gene will be like X length long. And when you do PCR, you'll see this little band being produced. If someone has Fragile X syndrome, then they'll have a band, but it will be bigger. And because the band's bigger by a certain size, you know that they have Fragile X syndrome. Um, <laughs> what? Okay. <laughs> Give me PCR, but like in three sentences. Okay. PCR, you have DNA. You use two other little bits of DNA that stick to certain parts of it that allow it to be copied up only within that area. So you know when you have Word and you search a specific word and that takes you to a certain part of a sentence or a book, you have those specific phrases so that you only get that section. And then what you do is you copy the entire bit in between it and you just re replicate it multiple times. So you have enough copies of that section so that you can see it. You're finding a bit of DNA and making it replicate until you have lots of it so that you can study it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then all you do is a size comparison. So we know what size it should be. And then if it's noticeably bigger than it should be, then we know that that person has Fragile X syndrome. Okay. Make sense? I think so. Okay, good. And then the next one is a, it's called a Western blot. I'll try and give you a simple breakdown of this one. So in this one, the Western blot, all I'm going to say is that the purpose of it is to check how many of this little group called a methyl group has attached to the DNA. A methyl group? So a methyl group is CH3. So how methane is CH4, it has the methyl group CH3. So it's just a chemical? Yes. And the more of this chemical that's attached, the more intense the signal you get from the western blot. If you end up with a really intense signal, you know that there's too much methylation, too many of these methyl groups, and therefore that the person has Fragile X syndrome. Okay, these seem like really specific tests. Yes, they are. So obviously this is the sort of thing that you would do to confirm a diagnosis after looking at someone's symptoms, looking at their family history, and making an educated decision. Okay, so so what struck me when you were listing the symptoms is that a lot of them could be related to other things. You said anxiety and ADHD, and what would make a doctor bother to do this really specific test for somebody exhibiting those symptoms? Well, it's because you've got a combination of them. So when you look at the symptoms, yeah, you might have, uh, for example, the symptoms of autism, but... You may also have some of the facial features. You might also have ADD symptoms, which you wouldn't really typically expect for someone in autism. So you're having all of those together. Uh, you're showing um, seizures. You have actual intellectual disability problems rather than simply the more specific learning disability problems. Uh, once you combine all of those symptoms together, then that will give you more confidence in that diagnosis and for you to then take a look at it. And the reason that you do those blood tests is that that's cheaper than a DNA test. Okay. And will a patient also have a family history to kind of 
put the doctors onto this? A lot of the time, yes. They won't always because obviously some people, an illness won't surface for a while, so you won't know what the family history of it is. But in this condition, it is typically inherited from family members. Okay. So what's the outlook for patients with this? Well, unfortunately, there is no cure. Um, is that because it's a, it's a developmental issue instead of a kind of illness that hits later? Yeah, I think this is one of those things where with the technology we have at hand, we can't undo the damage. Maybe we can stop the progression of it, though, which would be probably the angle that future research is working on. At the moment, we just manage the symptoms. Does so, it, the progression, does it get worse? So it's a developmental condition. So if you can stop the dysfunction early enough, then you can allow more normal development to happen during the period of time that you're treating someone. Okay. So it's not degenerative, but it's progressive in the sense that the effect kind of happens over time. So if you intervene earlier, you will have less severe symptoms. Okay. And other than that, it's just about supporting individuals with it. Yeah. So for managing, for example, ADD symptoms, you'll give someone stimulants. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but the most common ADHD medication are amphetamines. Amphetamines? Yeah. They're actually quite chemically similar to meth. We give people with ADD meth? Basically, yeah. <laughs> um... I want to ask why, but I'm scared that this involves science. I don't fully understand it. So, I, yeah, no. <laughs> We're not going any further into that one. For anxiety and compulsive disorders, the, the uh, medication that patients will be given are antidepressants, fairly standard. For severe mood disorders, antipsychotics. For seizures, anticonvulsants. And uh, another form of treatment that can be given is behavioural interventions. So speech therapy and sensory integration, which is like the same as exposure therapy. If there's a stimulant that a patient can't handle, you slowly introduce them to it until it becomes more normal for them. Oh, okay. And this is all alongside the various support systems like we heard about in that excerpt. Yeah, so there will also be a whole load of uh, social services around that that you hopefully can have access to alongside these uh, medical services. So do you want to know what type of mutation this is? Should I be scared? I don't think so. There's... Okay, putting my science hat on. Let's go. Okay, so this one is an X-linked dominant condition. Okay, X-linked. It's only on the X chromosome, so you can get it from either your mother or your father? Um, no! Kind of. So oh. this one's dominant, so it means you only need one copy to have the condition. That's sad. We don't like dominant things. It's X-linked, which means it comes through the X chromosome, which means that daughters can get it from their mother and father. Sons can only get it from their mother. Yeah. Yeah, I knew that. Mm-hmm. Okay. I feel like you don't believe me. Probably because of the whole, oh no, and I'm going to shove my face into the mattress because I think I got it wrong moment. Shh. Anyway, the gene itself that's mutated is a gene called FMR1, which it has a name that I'm not too keen on because of 
some of the things it's associated with. The acronym stands for Fragile X Mental Retardation 1 gene. Okay, so I presume here retardation is in the... it means slowing down. Yeah, it's the slowing of development. Um, obviously the bit that's a little uncomfortable is that particularly when we were kids, um, this was used as a slur. Yeah, it was a playground insult. People just threw around, but I was taught it's not acceptable to call somebody retarded. Yeah, it's not okay. Okay, so this gene, FMR something. FMR1. Okay, what does it do? This gene's essential for cognitive development, so it helps the uh, synapses in the brain to develop connections. So the synapses are little junctions between two nerves, and this just allows your nerves to make different connections. So while your brain is developing when you're young, the different nerves in your brain are just making connections between each other based on the different experiences you have, so that you have these learned interactions, these learned thoughts, and these learned memories. So lots of little roads around your brain. Yeah. If you can't make those connections as well, you're going to slow that development. Okay, and is this part of why there can be slowed speech and slowed thought? Yeah, most likely, because depending on what part of the brain is most heavily affected is going to determine what sort of symptoms you get. Is there a particular place in the brain that's always affected, or...? Um, not that I could see from my reading, but, you know, it could have just been something I didn't find. Okay, um, so how is this gene mutated? So, this gene, typically it has a series of these three nucleotides repeated, C, C, and G. So, this is going to sound a little reminiscent of Huntington's disease, but typically someone will have between 10 and 40 copies of this CCG. And sometimes that's in a row, but sometimes you can have short segments in between them that splits it up, and then that makes the section more stable. In Fragile X, someone will have more than 200 repeats. 200? Yeah, 200 repeats of the CCG. So it's, it's like the person coding your brain just got stuck and kept repeating the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Yeah. Wait, uh, I need to do 200. And over and over and over and over. <laughs> we, we try to keep this to a reasonable time. I've got to edit this. Fine. So the gene itself makes a protein that's responsible for methylation, that thing I mentioned earlier. Ah, okay, wait. Methyl was that chemical I'd never heard of. Yeah, attaching a certain chemical group to proteins and genes. Now, when it's working properly, it'll put it in the right place and it'll put the right amount down, which will mean that the cells will know when and when not to read genes. What? Okay, so what this mutation does is it causes something called a silencing methylation. What that means is that FMR1, the mutated form, makes a slightly different protein. That protein attaches lots and lots of these methyl groups to the DNA, which then means that it's wrapped more tightly so that you can't connect it. Like, if you keep putting more layers of wrapping paper on a present. Yes. And as a result, it's harder for your cells to access those genes and read them. As a result of that, it can't read genes in the DNA, and it cannot make some of these proteins, and then those proteins are directly responsible for allowing the nerves to make connections with the synapses. So as a result of that, 
this mutation ultimately results in less connections being made between the nerves in your brain. I'm so sorry there are too many steps in that process. Yeah, well, I don't think I can simplify that anymore. Okay, so the mutated gene makes a wonky protein yes. that makes too many methyl wrapping papers. The, wrap it, the methyl wrapping paper goes and wraps up DNA? Yes, so the DNA can't be read. So those bits of DNA can't make proteins, which then can't make the brain synapses. They can't make the connections, yeah. Okay, listeners, that took me a lot of tries. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I hope you understood more than me. You're getting the final edit. So, interestingly, women that have between 40 and 200 repeats in this gene are at risk of a child having Fragile X syndrome. So this is again a little bit like Huntington's disease, where sometimes you can have what seems like a random appearance of the condition. So where you've ended up with more and more repeats over the generation, and finally you just kind of reach the tipping point? Yes. Okay. And and those repeats happen because some sometimes genes just mess up when they... The cells make mistakes sometimes, yeah. So you end up with lots and lots of mistakes over time? Yeah. Okay. How common is this disease? Well, according to the CDC, for males, you'll find about 1 in 7,000 births with Fragile X, and for females, you'll find about 1 in every 11,000 births. That seems pretty common. It's not the rarest of conditions we've covered, that's for sure. And it actually constitutes 50% of all X-linked mental disability. Okay, I'm not sure how many X-linked mental disabilities there are to understand that stat, but... I'm not entirely sure either, but that's pretty significant. Yeah, so this one's pretty common and must affect a lot of people. Yep, and it's especially common in a certain region of Colombia. So in 1999, the region of Ricauta in Colombia was tested and they found that... 1 in 38 men and 1 in 100 women had Fragile X Syndrome. What? Yeah, so there's a good possibility that this is due to maybe this region is quite isolated and therefore there was a certain element of interbreeding that made the mutation more common. But I don't know. My gosh, that's really common. Yeah, 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 it is. So I hope that Columbia has services in place for that area. That's so interesting. I wonder what that's done to that that society. Hmm. I'll be honest, I didn't look into it because I was worried it was going to be depressing. That That's fair. Not in the sense of what the condition is, but in how it's being managed. We can, you know what, we didn't look it up, so we can just hold out hope that it's all being managed wonderfully and everybody is taken care of. I hope so. So, unsurprisingly, because this affects a decent amount of the brain, there are other illnesses associated with Fragile X Syndrome. I know this is your least favourite section. Wait, other, other illnesses? You already listed, like, 50 symptoms. Yes. Ugh. But, as you noticed, some of them are kind of considered illnesses in their own sense. So, autism and ADHD, for example. Oh yeah, why... Why are there extra kind of mood disorders happening with this? If you're not creating connections between sections of the brain that regulate behaviours, then you're not going to be able to regulate your behaviour. 
Wow, brains do lots of things. Yes, yes they do. So, other illnesses associated, there's a condition called strabismus, which is where your eyes don't properly align when looking at something, and this can lead to a lazy eye, which you know can be managed with an eye patch and careful physiotherapy and treatment. There's also an illness that most frequently affects men and who are well known as premutation carriers, so they have less than 200 copies of the CCG, but they have more than 40. And it's called Fragile X-Associated Tremor slash Ataxia Syndrome. It's a late-onset neurodegenerative disorder, and it typically affects people over the age of 50 with symptoms such as problems with moving, Parkinsonism, tremor, cognitive decline, and either a gradual or rapid onset of their symptoms. That seems so unnecessary. <laughs> it's pretty grim, isn't it? Oh my gosh, that, that's interesting that that shows up before there's too many repeats. It's not common, though. And then disappears for people with with X? With yeah, physical. like there are some, yeah, there are some noticeable differences in the symptoms there. I have no idea why. Hmm. Um, the final one, before we wrap things up for this section, is that women can get a fragile X-related primary ovary sufficiency, which basically means that women with fragile X can end up having their menopause before the age of 40. Oh, that can have a big impact. Yeah, obviously that has a, uh, obviously that affects fertility and your opportunities to have children. And on that note... Happy as always. We'll be taking a break and we'll go into the history afterwards. Are we done with science time? Well, it's history time now. Yeah. Tell me. All the things. Please. Such as? The history. How far does Fragile X Syndrome go back? Well, looking at written cases, it's kind of hard to tell. There are a few records of people with learning disabilities throughout history, and given that this is a pretty common form of hereditary learning disability, it's likely that some of these cases involve Fragile X Syndrome. So, for example, natural fool was a term used in the Tudor period to describe someone with a learning disability, and it's likely that some court jesters had Fragile X Syndrome. Uh, Henry VIII was actually quite partial to having these, quote, natural fools as court jesters, and there was also an additional job assigned for the person who was responsible for looking after them and making sure that they were happy and felt safe. So kind of mixed feelings on it because mm, exploiting exploiting people with learning disabilities for your own enjoyment but at least you took care of them yeah they're treated well throughout their life except for yeah anyway don't really want to get too far too much into that one ancient sparta would unfortunately abandon children that were deemed to be in quotes idiots which is a historical term for someone with a learning disability, and it's quite possible that there are cases of Fragile X Syndrome here as well, though because 
of how much overlap there are between learning disabilities, it's hard to say for certain. Yeah, I mean, the Greeks and many other cultures were pretty big about abandoning children on mountains. Yeah, Sparta really loved doing that. If you read certain records, yes. Yeah, okay, we'll avoid the historiography for now because I can't keep up. So, on a more positive one, 7th century Islamic society believed that people with learning disabilities had their mind in heaven and their body on earth. Oh, how sweet! So they were deemed to be sacred and revered. I don't know how long this lasted, um, and I don't know what the current views are or the continuous what the continuous history historical viewpoint of people with learning disabilities was in Islamic culture. So I just like that snapshot because it was something that was quite nice and pleasant. And there are the occasional moments in history where people actually have revered people with learning disabilities and treated them as someone to be cherished. Yay! People being not terrible. Yeah, we don't get those enough, so I needed to include it. So can we trace where this mutation came from? We can trace some of it. So most of the Fragile X mutations are thought to, or at least the ones that we see today, are thought to come from one or more founder mutations. So there have been some studies. Uh, there was a study conducted on the most common mutation responsible for Fragile X in Sweden, and it was found to have a common ancestor dating back to the 18th century. Obviously, this only tells you who the common ancestor was. It doesn't necessarily tell you the ultimate origin of the condition of that mutation. And in Finland, there was, uh, again, the most common mutation there was traced, and the common ancestor was found to date back to the 16th century. So this has, at the very least, at least cases we know of, have had origins from a few centuries ago, possibly older. Feels like it must be older. Yeah, it it probably is. It's just it's just quite difficult to date some of these things. Huh. So I'm really curious with this one. How has it lasted so long? It's dominant, but it sounds like people with this condition may have historically really struggled to do to to deal with normal life. Well. Interestingly, it's actually modern life that is often more problematic for people with mild and moderate learning disabilities, as historically, with us having a more agricultural-based society, this wasn't so much of an obstacle, because if someone could eventually learn to do a task, and they were physically capable of doing a task, then they would be contributing as much to society as someone without a learning disability, and therefore it wasn't an issue, and it wouldn't necessarily affect their ability to survive, thrive, and potentially have children. Oh, I guess that makes sense. So in this situation, the only reason that we see it as being potentially selected against is because our current society is not as accommodating based on our expectations and our needs to learning disability. Huh, that's really interesting. So... I also looked into when this illness was characterised, and turns out that in 1943, a British neurologist called James Purden Martin and a British geneticist called Julia Bell described a pedigree of X-linked mental disability. A woman? Yes, there was a woman involved. Oh, yeah! She is the geneticist, so she helped kind of trace the actual hereditary part of it. And in 1969, 
a researcher called Herbert Lubbs first cited an unusual marker X chromosome in association with mental disability. And this is kind of where the whole fragile X name comes from, because it would create a different shape of the X chromosome. Really? Yes. This one gene? Yes, there may be others that do it, but this one did this. This is so cool. You didn't mention this earlier. So the repeats are so long that this one gene misshapes the X chromosome? It's possible that that's the case, yeah. I don't is fully understand. Is the chromosome actually shaped like an X? Um, Kind of all the chromosomes are. So you have these little like tuber chromosomes and then you have the pairs that often stay stuck together. So then they form like an X shape. Ah, cool. So after this uh, marker X chromosome was identified, one year later in 1970, Frederick Hecht coined the term fragile site. So you can see where the name fragile X syndrome is coming from here. And in 1985, Felix F. De La Cruz outlined extensively the physical, psychological, and cytogenic characteristics, so cell cellular characteristics, of those afflicted in addition to the prospects for therapy. Wow, so all really quite recent. Yeah, and remember how I said how modern society was uh, typically less accommodating to learning disabilities? Yeah. In the 1960s, standard advice was to put children with learning disabilities away in an institution. Oh. So that means a mental asylum. Oh no. So, That's not a nice place to grow up. Yeah, so our, our modern history on this is, uh, is a bit checkered. Thankfully, our future is a little bit better. Yay! Tell me about it. So, there are a couple potential treatments on their way. We have a gene therapy that is in the preclinical stage. So hopefully this will resolve the mutated FMR1 gene. But I thought you said that it won't really help because it's developmental. Well, if you test a child at an early stage, then you can replace this, and then they can have more typical development from the point that you start treating someone. Hmm. So that that could be a partial cure. Yes. And if someone has a family history and you obviously test someone with, say, amniocentesis so that you know the baby has that, there might be ways of treating them once they're born so that you can really start like having these effects and maybe the child will be in a sense unaffected wow but obviously that's we're a long way from that so no one hold me to account on that statement this is a guess scientists have also recently discovered that a lack of the protein formed by fmr1 results in too much of another protein called pde2a and this means that they've got a new target that they've started researching for treatment because it's possible that you can undo some of the symptoms or reduce some of the symptoms of Fragile X by reducing the amount of this second protein in the nerve cells. That, that was some science. Yep. The mutated gene creates a funny protein. The funny protein means you have too much of a second protein. So therefore... Reduce that second protein to undo the effect of the first two steps. Oh, okay. So what are the stigmas associated with this disease and how can we combat them? Well, historically, idiot was used as a term for someone with a learning disability and it's still an active slur. So one good step would be to for people to stop using 
idiot as a slur and associating it with learning disability, because it's not just that we think, oh, someone did something silly. We often then make it as a judgment of their intellect. Huh, I'd never really thought of it as a slur. So we kind of need to rethink the way that we discuss intelligence and how it's historically related to mental disability. We could also do... That seems like a really easy thing to tackle. Yeah, tiny issue. Yeah, yeah. Just got to manage that with race, sex, gender, and we'll be good. But something that's a little bit easier to do is to address a few of the myths that surround Fragile X Syndrome. Are they going to be sad again? They're not the worst ones. Oh, okay. So, first myth is that there has to be a family history of Fragile X Syndrome for a child to have the condition. Well, you said that it is usually a dominant condition, but as with most of these, they can spring up. Yeah, and because it's that uh, what's known as an expansion repeat mutation, we have loads and loads and loads of copies, sometimes you have just enough copies beforehand that when you pass it on to the next generation, that person gets it, but no one previously has the condition. So you don't necessarily have to have a family history to get Fragile X Syndrome. Another myth is that girls cannot have Fragile X Syndrome, and that boys with Fragile X Syndrome are always severely affected. Now, it's understandable, this one. Girls do get it less often, and they do tend to get less severe cases. However, that's obviously girls still get it, so that's not true as a statement. As for the second part, boys are often more severely affected because they don't have that second X chromosome that can kind of help. However, that doesn't mean that they're always severely affected. Okay. And the final myth. All Fragile X Syndrome patients can be recognised by their unusual physical features. But you said they don't always show up. Yeah, so someone may not have any of those physical features. And, you know, what if it's just the big testicles? You might not know. Yeah, maybe it's the large testicles, and those tend to not be publicly visible. But also, you know, women don't have testicles, so... That physical feature is not particularly helpful for diagnosis in women. Also, you know, big ears doesn't really help much. No, I know friends with big ears and uh, they're in they're, they, they do not have this condition. I can confirm that. It seems like a really good one to not diagnose based on physical features. I mean, let's be honest, basically every health condition people should not just casually diagnose. This is true. And with that, we are at the end of the episode. Thanks, this one was really interesting. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So I've got a little bit of reading, first of all. So, as I mentioned earlier, the book Made Possible Stories of Success by People with Learning Disabilities in Their Own Words by Saba Salman is a book that you can get off of Amazon, and I would recommend it from the sections I've been able to read. It is very interesting and sometimes a little heart-wrenching. And there are also... Uh, various resources online to learn more about developmental disabilities. And we also recommend you check out the UK charity Fragile X Society. If you're interested in getting involved in our community, we have a Facebook group you can check out, and you can find us on Twitter at GeneticDrift1. Also, if you have any feedback, comments, suggestions for future episodes, please get in touch with us on our email 
at geneticdriftpodcast at gmail.com. Excellent. So this podcast, like every other podcast, the music is produced by William Kitchener Music. So please check that out. And I'm just going to sign off by saying be careful who you judge because you can't see the genes. So don't expect to see the illness. Goodbye. Bye.